Welcome to episode number nine of the Zach Kuhn Show. My guest today is Del Bryant, president and CEO emeritus of BMI. Famously, Dell is also the son of Boudlow and Felice Bryant, who literally are considered the very first professional songwriters in Nashville. I swear, look it up. Together, his parents sold over half a billion records. Again, look this up and wrote hits for artists like Emmylou Harris, Lil Jimmy Dickens, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, and so many more. The list is insane. Dell and I talk about the early days of Nashville because Dell was there. We talk about songwriters, we talk about the rights of songwriters, and so much more. I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. Let's dive in. Okay, Dell, we are recording on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Well, I'm glad to be here today with you, Zach. I'm so excited for this. This this really means a lot to me because I I, I was telling I was talking with you earlier about how I grew up in a in a public school with an amazing recording program, and we ended. The, I remember the first project we ever did was recording "Dream" by the Everly Brothers, and I remember learning how to record a song, learning how to arrange arrange it to that song, and we ended up doing like a psychedelic rock version of it, something totally out of the box. And later, I you know sort of put the pieces together of who wrote the song, like the the amazing history of your family and their contributions to country music and, you know, just how, how much, how influential they were. And I mean, for that, that specifically, I'm just curious. I mean, I want to dive into so much, but do you, do you remember, do you know how that song came together? I, I know I've heard that your dad wrote it about, about Felice, his wife. I mean, do you, any, any memory of how that song came together? Yeah. I, I, uh, I actually have a lot of memories about so many of the songs written in their early career because my brother and I were, we're always there. My folks were like the original quarantined couple. They they stayed home and wrote all the time. They just didn't get out much, and they were always at home writing. But that particular song, of course, was uh, the follow-up to Wake Up Little Susie. And Dad and Mom would really get into a mood and get into a groove trying to write for write a lot of songs, but every now and then, certainly in this instance, trying to write songs for the Everleys, which they were doing then. And my father had a had a habit of waking up earlier than anybody in the house. He would go down, make his coffee. He might take a walk in the yard. We had a very, very large yard with no sight lines to neighbors. So he'd, he'd have his boxer shorts on, maybe a, a, a what they call now a woman beater T-shirt, <laughs> You know, one of those little things like a tank. Yep. Uh, what defines uh, early? What, what what was early? Early would be like five thirty, six o'clock. Early. And he, he'd be up. He'd have his coffee. He might walk through the yard, talk to his trees, and then be back in uh, in uh, the living room, uh, informal living room, where his guitar and his chair and his, all of his books and ledgers were, and sit and, and uh, wait for the muse to visit. And... Uh, the Muse on that morning, which uh, was, I believe, a weekend because it was the weekend or either the summer, and I can't put it my finger on it right this moment. But Dad had gotten up, and uh, by the time I and my brother and my mother got up, which was probably closer to 9 o'clock, you could tell that my father was very excited that day. And he said to us, and more specifically to Mother, he said, 
police, I think I wrote a hit. I want you guys to hear it. And they used to always play their songs for us. And we had our favorite songs, which they would play at any moment. If you were going to bed or you just said, would you play that song? Dad was always glad to do it. Always proud of what they were doing. Now, but how often, morning, I mean, there are so many hits. How often would he say, I have a hit? Was it a common occurrence? Or if he said it, did you know it was going to be a special song? Well, Dad had a way and an ego, I guess you might say, of thinking that everything that they finished really had a shot because he knew that nobody specifically knew what they were looking for and that anything that they wrote, they really polished and finished and thought that anything might fit the bill for someone, not being able to get into everybody's head as to what they would like. So he he knew the songs were good if they finished them and were prepared to show them because they they wouldn't show anything that they didn't think was, you know, polished and ready. But quite often, Dad thought all the songs were pretty good if they were finished. And he never, if someone said, man, I like that, would never say, well, I don't know about that one. You know, he was he was all on board. But there were songs that he was far more attracted to and felt that they were just stronger. And, and that didn't necessarily indicate that they got cut over the long haul. But sure. that particular song, he was excited, and he, he took us into a room right off the kitchen where we had a reco-cut machine uh, where you would uh, – you know, you play into it, it, you know, you drop a needle down on a acetate and the 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 needle would cut into the acetate and you would get a bunch of uh, purple-blue fuzz that you had to brush off while the record was, you know, while the version was going down. And Dad had cut an acetate. It was a very, you know, uh, poor quality type way of recording, but he had cut an acetate and we went down into that into that section and Dad played it. And it was just a very, very uh, naked, much like their stuff was, guitar vocal. And it was all I have to do is dream. And Dad uh, played the thing. And Mother said, Boodlo, that is a hit. The only thing it needs is out. You could have a hit on that. And Dad beamed. And I distinctly remember that because that was one of the few times when he just drummed everybody up as we woke up, got us in the room, and played it for us. He was very proud of that. And I okay, so say, oh yeah, I'll say Zach one more thing to answer your question. My my father may have written a lot of stuff thinking about his own life and love and just channeling what it feels like to be in love, just like my mother did. But then they wrote a lot of cheating songs, and they weren't channeling what it felt like to be cheaters or channeling what it felt like to be heartbroken because someone had left them. They they wrote everything and anything that 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 came to them. And as I said, Dad would await the muse. He would he would just strum on the guitar, just think. You know, he didn't always write with his uh, guitar in his arms. He wrote, uh, you know, he wrote quite often the song completely down, music and everything, before he lifted the instrument. So he would, anything that came to him, and he was very, uh, tried to get very open when they were writing, just to be receptive to the powers that were out there in the ether. He would uh, write and then just let the song take it as far as the song would take it. Then he would apply intellect and uh, and uh, and work and and try to finish it and take it to quite often places that were a little bit unusual, but uh, unique and, and, and at the same time very common if you were to have heard it. So he, I don't think that 
they were writing about their own love that much um, generally. I know a song like We Could, which is the title of the CMA uh, exposition, or ex- exhibition, I guess I could say, uh, that was written while my father was asleep by my mother, looking at him and thinking, wow, I love that man. If anyone could do these things, we could. But for the most part, they were just writing everything they knew, and Dad was writing a lot of harmony songs at that point for the Everleys, and that took a little bit more direction and consciousness. Where does a line, like one of my favorite uh, lines in one of your parents' songs is in Little Jimmy Dickens when he says, um, I, oh, man, I, oh, man, I'm trying to remember the first, the first part, but, but he says, I'm dang near highfalutin in the first verse of Country Boy, which yeah. to me is such, and he's saying, I'm a, he's saying I'm a simple boy, or I hate all those city folks who are so dang near uh, highfalutin, which to me is not a simple boy phrase, it, but, but it's so fun in that song. Like, where do you think they were, you know, they were pulling inspiration? Would they talk like that around the house? They seem so much, you know, in the videos you watch of them, it doesn't seem like they're going to be using those kinds of words. But where do you think they were? that was coming from? Well, that was a very – my father was a Georgia boy. He was a very smart, very talented, well-educated. Uh, he played in the symphony uh, in Atlanta at uh, 18, but he also was one of the top uh, fiddle players in Detroit and had won the – uh, not Detroit, in uh, Georgia – and had won the Georgia Fiddling Contest at 12 or 13. I forget the year. So he was a fiddler. He was a classically trained. He milked cows every morning uh, before he went to school. He put lard in his hair, which was a custom for country kids to do, to slick their hair back. He was a country boy. And the word highfalutin is a word that was used a lot by country folks in in, uh, in Georgia. Even when I was a kid, they say, oh, he acts so highfalutin. I mean, that was common uh, vernacular in the South. So Dad, a lot of those country songs, those Jimmy Dickin ones, they take the real uh, the real vernacular of the people, you know, and of, uh, of, of that time. So Dad could very easily... Uh, put that in and work that into his songs. And at the same time, when they were writing those earliest Jimmy Dickens and certainly Country Boy, the biggest hit in the world damn near was uh, Annie Get Your Gun. You know, Irving I mean, Berlin. Yeah. What, what was the, you know, the, the Broadway play of uh, Annie Get Your Gun? And, uh, of course, right, right. Annie Oakley, you know, that music thing. And they really used, they really used the country vernacular in that song, even though they weren't country boys, they really used it. And mom and dad at the time that they wrote Country Boy, which they hadn't even been to Nashville or hadn't met Fred Rose and didn't didn't have a clue of what it'd be like to have a hit or get a, a major act to record your song, they'd written that song and they were writing some of that type stuff that they thought was Broadway type that uh was was popular at the time and they were they were trying to get into the zone and just having fun this is before they even thought they were songwriters uh and trying to get in the zone of, of what would it be like to write some for any get your gun one of those funny you know uh barnyard type songs and my father said well hell that's that's my background i can do that and and mother was a great little lyricist and, and they just fell into it but highfalutin is a very common common uh term for the south and were they listening to 
like Rogers and Hammerstein and those types of Broadway shows or, or specifically Annie Get Your Gun because that had the Western, you know, theme to it? Well, they weren't living in the South at that time. They were, they were living in Green Bay. They were living in Detroit and Cincinnati. And dad was a traveling jazz musician. And he was, he played in so many different kinds of bands, Zach, from, from hoedown to, to jazz, to highbrow, to society music. It was very important for dad. And, uh, it was important to mom just from her own personal taste to know all the pop standards of, of that time. I mean, dad, part of the things he did for money were strolling in restaurants where somebody would request, you know, uh, a classic, a classic pop song. So dad knew all those and mom certainly grew up loving all those songs and singing them as a child. So it wasn't unusual for them to have just the broadest spectrum of, of musical taste and musical knowledge. They weren't, they weren't really country or hayseed type people. And my dad had been, by the time he met mom, he'd been traveling all over the country and taken up jazz and, and played the big cities like Chicago, Detroit, certainly Milwaukee, and was uh, well-versed in all sorts of music from classical to to uh, the hot, you know, Club of France with Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, where they, you know, simply jam around the classic song. So their knowledge of, uh, of uh, the Great American Songbook was vast. Okay, so it's, it's very well documented how they met at a hotel that your father was playing a gig at, your mother was working the elevator, you know, she splashes him with a water fountain, and they're engaged two days later on, you know, they meet on the evening of his birthday, February 14th, and then they move in together, they're living in a trailer, they start writing songs, and eventually they go, okay, wait a second, these songs are good, your mother says, you know, these are as good, if not better, than what's on the radio, and they start reaching out to publishers, and famously, they work with, you know, know, Acuff Rose. How do they meet these two guys? How did they get connected to the publishers? Because at the time they're they're not living in Nashville. So how do they how do they meet these you know that the Acuff Rose team? Well, you know, just I, I'm going to give you a long-winded answer, but I want to stop with something you said and that I just always find amusing. Yeah, where they said you know our, our songs they sounded pretty good. They sounded as good as anything on the radio. That is such a common thought. I worked at BMI for 40, 42 years, and I can't tell you in the early days how many writers would come in and say, well, man, I'm writing some songs, and they sound as good to me as the ones I've been hearing on the radio. The problem is they're not on the radio. And that that is just about as common a, 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 a view of a writer back when my folks were starting as, as a writer today. That's, you've got to come up with some way to gauge what you're doing. A lot of people, they they hear something on the radio and they they think their song is just as good. In in reality, they don't have a verse, they don't have rhymes, they don't have anything. They just they're not really capable of gauging that. But my folks loved music. My father had played the hits, the classics, jazz. He was very familiar with what hit songs sounded because he was always forced to play it when somebody requested it in a bar. And mother grew up loving to sing and sing those songs. So they really had a pretty, as it turns out, a pretty good idea when they were writing a good song. And their stuff, as it turns out, was just about the quality of a lot of the stuff they heard. So I always think that's interesting, knowing that that's not always the case. Right. Uh, 
my folks were about the time they figured out they had some a pretty good cache of songs. Dad started getting the billboard. They couldn't afford much, but Dad got a billboard every week, or one every other week. But he got the billboard, and he kept looking through all of the of the information. He would look at the songs, look at who wrote it, look at who published it. He would read the articles, try to try to discern exactly what a publisher did, what a publisher was, and how one got their songs to a publisher who he had uh, become aware was evidently the key to getting your songs uh, recorded. And Dad used to say in some of his interviews, he said, I'd write 20 letters at least a week and sometimes 22 or three back. You know, in other words, unopened, nobody was interested. Right. And that would have... Uh, killed a lot of enthusiasm for a lot of people that might might also be good writers but just didn't have the ability to accept uh, refusal and defeat, so to speak. My parents credited a lot of their success with the fact that they refused to be uh, – refused to let anybody bring them down and to let any situation depress them. They, they Every time they got a refusal or someone said no – they became more charged and wrote more letters and kept after it. So they'd written hundreds, literally hundreds of letters, sending out a few songs. They'd gotten very little uh, encouragement. But Arthur Godfrey, who was a big radio person back in the day, in the 40s, you remember his name, I'm sure, uh, or possibly not. Arthur Godfrey, though, very important uh, person in the industry in the 40s and 50s. He wrote back to them saying, I like country, boy, but uh, I would have to have this right, that right, and and basically wanted most of the rights to it, including a lot of the writer's share. And my father just basically said, well, I don't think that's the way it should go, and didn't, didn't follow up on that. But one day in Cincinnati, where they were living, dad was working, and mother was cleaning a small apartment, or maybe we were in the trailer at this time, uh, a friend of his who he'd been in the band with named Rome Johnson stopped by and said, you know, now that you're here, you ought, to, you ought to come over to the house and have dinner with my wife and I. And they went to the house and were having dinner, and Mother was in the kitchen with uh, Rome's wife, and she heard Rome saying, well, you know, I'm, I've, I've been to Nashville, and I've got a, uh, a record deal for a single with uh, – with uh, I believe it was MGM, and he said, Fred Rose is going to produce me. And Dad was familiar with who Fred Rose was because it was about a year earlier that Fred Rose has exploded out of Nashville with Hank Williams. Right. And, and that name was familiar to Dad. And he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm looking for songs, and Fred is looking for songs for me. And uh, that's what I've been doing now. My mother heard that much and stuck her head out and said, Boodlow, show him that song we wrote, Country Boy. That might be a good one for him. And Dad was like, what, huh? She said, yeah, show it to him. And Dad got a guitar out or, or got uh, Rome's guitar, whatever it was. And he played Country Boy. And Mother joined in and kind of uh, helped uh, enliven the performance and Rump said, man, I like that. that. That sounds good to me. And he said, let's get Fred on the on the phone and play that for Fred. And they called Fred up on the phone. And Dad played the song 
for Fred. Fred liked it. He said, can you get me a wire of that? That was an early form of a recording that they made later and sent to Fred the next day or so. And that was the first connection. It was through Rome Johnson who was going to have a session with Fred Rose. And this was in very, very early 48. Now, just curious, your father's classically trained, so I'm assuming he would have the ability to be writing out these songs with melody and chords and lyrics. Is that how he was sending them to publishers? Was he sending essentially sheet music, or, or somehow was he sending, uh, you know, re- recordings somehow uh, during, you know, to publishers when he was mailing out all these letters? He was sending both the sheet music, which he wrote out, and an acetate. And we even have in the ex- exhibition at uh, at uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame. It's not in the exhibition, but it's part of the the, the treasure trove of things my brother and I gave the museum. Uh, a couple of those early acetates that they had mailed out by the gross load on Country Boy, well before anybody uh, liked it. So they would they would have a very rough acetate. They'd make it a at a facility in Georgia, in Montreal when they lived there. And uh, Dad would do a, a sheet music. He'd do the all the notes, the chords, and, and lyrics, and everything down. Okay, so they get the song to Fred Rose. Fred Rose likes it. He gets the wire, and then how does he get it to Jimmy Dickens? And, and does the song become a hit instantly? Well, he he told Dad he got it, and then he called and started communicating with Dad a little by phone and a lot by letter. And all those early letters are at the Hall of Fame. Where he said, I really like it. Tex Williams, I think, would be a good person for this. And then a couple of days or a week or so later, he'd get a note saying, no, Tex didn't. Did, it's too late for him. He's already cut. Uh, but I really believe in this song. And you know, if I'd like to hold it, but if you if you want to show it to others, you just let me know. But I'm I want I want a little time to work at Boudlow. And Dad would write a letter back saying, "Well, that's great." He said, "I I have had some, you know, I've been writing letters all along, as I've told you, Fred." And the Aberbacks, Julian Aberback of Hill and Range, likes a couple of my songs. And Fred Fred said, "Well, they're they're certainly well known publishers, but." Before you get involved with the Aberbacks Boodle, I'd make sure that I got an advance on anything. And and then in a couple of letters Dad wrote to the Aberbacks, Dad said, I'd need an advance. And they said, absolutely not. We don't give advances. <laughs> and then uh, a, a couple of letters a month later, the Aberbacks evidently came up with a couple of songs they liked and even sent an advance. But meanwhile, Fred was trying this song out on everybody. And he wrote and said, Jimmy Dickens did it on the Opry last night, and they really loved it and uh, got a good reaction. I think I think he's going to cut it. And then they got another letter saying, yo, Jimmy, Jimmy is really getting a reaction. Can you write a couple of verses, encore verses, which my folks did? And before you know it, it, was, it had been performed on the Opry several times. It was getting a big reaction, and uh, Jimmy went into the studio and cut it. And when it came out, it was an immediate smash. It uh, it wasn't number one, but it was like number seven, and it was in the charts a long time. And it was the door. It was it opened the door. It uh, it really solidified Fred as a mentor and uh, 
dad shortly after the song uh had come out and proved itself he had gone and visited with fred fred had paid for his uh a trip to go up there and he stayed a couple of days and kind of bonded with the guy they were two uh old alcoholics uh and and fred eventually helped dad kick the habit and uh they just became you know like a father-son kind of uh deal and uh and he he told dad he said man you're you're a writer i think you could make it and then uh mom and dad were up in milwaukee or not milwaukee but green bay during a big part of the run of country boy and they they were getting radio shows and they had a radio show that they hosted and they had a lot of people watching not watching but listening and they became rather successful but we lived in a a poor man's airstream at that point and uh we had to get out of green bay before the winter came and on the way back home uh coming somewhat close to nashville uh they were about broke uh they were usually broke (laughs) and uh and uh they called dad said well you know maybe we can get a little advance from Fred. We're close to Nashville. And they called Fred and he said, oh, yeah, come on in. It's, we're not that far from where you're at on the road. And we've already gotten about four or $500 uh, off this song that I can make you a check. And, and my parents said four or $500. Then was like, you know, like, well, inflation alone today, that would be many thousands of dollars. Sure. And uh, so that was the first big money. And uh, and then shortly after that, they moved. We moved from South Georgia into Nashville, and uh, in the shank, very very shank of forty nine. So one of the things that, that I think is really interesting about their career, which you don't see as your parents' career, which you don't see as much today, is they were very involved in actually pitching their songs. And we're hustling. Where today, song I think songwriters are are less involved. The publishers themselves are the ones doing the plugging and the pitching for the most part. I mean, I've heard stories of, of you know people calling your dad and saying you know what do you have for me? And he says oh I've got I've got a great song and he writes the song on the car ride over because he actually has nothing. Like, do you remember seeing this hustle or your mom and you know inviting people over for dinner and you know cooking Italian food? and pitching songs in between eating. Do, do you remember this hustle? Like, was was this a constant hustle, work, and flow for them? Like, like what did this look like when they weren't writing songs? Well, I, I remember it well because, as I said, they did. They were quarantined. They were always at home, and my brother and I were always there. And we were, you know, I, I guess I was 10 years old before I figured out I wasn't writing the songs. I mean, everything was done right around you. You learned, you learned uh, very early in my house when to when to be very quiet and watch and when you could talk and 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 when you could uh do whatever you were doing because we lived in small quarters and they were always there writing but they were they were aggressive writers they wrote all the time and if uh you know dad would usually call people his strength he always felt it was very dependent on having a good phone book and a good uh good uh list of phone numbers so he was always whether they were disc jockeys producers artists musicians he was always keeping up with people and wanting to know specifically as a professional songwriter and the literally the first in nashville to do nothing but that 
who's cutting? And he was always, and Mom and Dane and I were always at the opera every weekend, and Dad would be in the back uh, music rehearsal rooms showing songs, jamming with the people. But it was very important to know who was cutting. And he would ask people all the time, why don't you come over for dinner? You know, my wife's a hell of a cook. And he'd break it to Mother sometimes the day before, sometimes about an hour and a half before people came. And it would, you know, that was that was one source of aggravation that was somewhat consistent. But it was so successful uh, uh, an endeavor that it just became the, the course of events. And uh, then people would come, they would eat, they would drink, they would feed them so much, as Dad would say, we had them captive. They couldn't move. And they would pitch, you know, dozens of songs. When they had one or two books, they'd, they'd bring them both out and start, you know, leafing through the books, finding songs they had forgotten. When they had 12, they were doing the same. They might pitch a song that came out of the second book, even though they were writing in the 12th book, that all of a sudden was just right for a certain artist. They were very aggressive at showing their songs, but aggressive in the in the most friendly fashion. They were very, my father was laid back. My mother was funny. People loved their company. They were obviously two of the brightest bulbs on the tree, and people were really attracted to them. But Dad would tell people he had, man, I've got some songs I think you're going to love, and then book something maybe a week from a certain day or two or three days from a certain day and stay up. I saw my father stay up one uh, stretch for about a day and a half in his chair writing the whole time, and he wrote about 20 songs. Wow. But he would get in a groove, and he would say, man, we're going to be pitching a song to Tex Ritter. He's got that low voice. He he, he does this real honest pitch, uh, no cheating songs for him, no this, no that, and just kind of groove into what he thought was good. He knew singers' ranges. He knew the type of topics they, they, they sold best or what they liked, at least. And he would just move into that zone. He and Mother both would, and they would just – Unload, uh, unload as much as they could get out of the muse and get it in the book. And then they'd have, you know, four, five, six, seven very fresh songs directed at specific artists that they could pitch. And then they would just start running back songs that they hadn't remembered or they thought were hits that were good. And my brother and I were usually there for the pitch unless it was a late night thing after dinner, which sometimes it was, and we'd just listen to it. But We'd say, hey, Dad, why don't you show so-and-so? And Dad would go, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Or, I mean, there was no song that I could mention, my brother could mention, Mom could mention, or Dad could, you know, dredge up that 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 uh, wasn't game, and they didn't think, well, that's a good one, we'll try it. Because they wrote completed songs, good songs. Uh, and And Dad, the one thing Dad knew that was probably more helpful than any thing other than knowing how to write a song and being talented was that nobody knew what they were looking for until they heard it. Sure. Do any of your mother's recipes survive? <laughs> well, we've got different, yeah, we've got some things written down and uh, some of uh, the family members put them down and we have them. And of course the the uh, Hall of Fame, and it's in the exhibition, has their mom's pasta sauce. It's funny, it's it's just like most of the songs, they're all in dad's hands, even if they co-wrote it. And the pasta sauce, which is definitely mother's, is in dad's hands. Wow. And uh, the uh, funny thing to me in that pasta 
uh, recipe when it comes to, it says in seasoning. My mother wasn't anxious to give everybody the complete secret. And uh, when we had the party for the exhibition as it opened, I looked at the sauce and my brother had gone to help uh, the CMA's cook, the, the, the Hall of Fame's cook. They made just massive amounts of sauce and it ended up being really just about as good as mom's. But there was no, there was no mention of one of her secret weapons was the bay leaf. Was I never had pasta at home that didn't have a bay leaf cooking in it, whether it was a, a quick sauce or, a, or all day sauce. And so I remember calling Dane says, "Don't forget to tell the chef about the bay leaf." <laughs> and the, and the, her secret was was sautéing the onions, cooking them down very slowly. And then getting all the ingredients from the tomato paste to the fresh tomatoes to the oil to, if it was a meat sauce, the meat cooked. And then letting it slowly cook to where it's almost hardly bubbled. It was just the smallest little, little teeny bit of action where it was bubbling. Let it do that for hours and hours and hours to where the sauce thickened so that you'd run a piece of pasta through it and it looked red. I mean, the sauce didn't fall off of her pasta. So, you know, that that recipe made the family probably more money than anything else. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that she cooked that we have uh, the the rules and regs on how to do. And Dane and I were always in the kitchen with her. And my brother can really cook really well and cooks a lot of mom's dishes. And I, I can uh, do a few of them myself. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Some of you may know that I run an industry newsletter called the Nashville Briefing. Really takes you to the front row of everything happening in our industry. And if you want to learn more about it, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com to subscribe. Also, if you're enjoying this show and specifically this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star review on your podcast listening platform. Thanks so much. Now back to the show. Okay, so how do you get into the business? I mean, it seems like it's a straight shoot. Of course, you know, you end up working at BMI. Did Francis Preston pull you in? How how do you get that first gig at BMI? Well, it, you know, first and foremost, I was raised, you know, I was born the year, you know, uh, Country Boy hit. And uh, everything was a song in my life. Everything was watching people write. I thought, so I was probably seven or eight that everybody was a singer, a musician, or a songwriter. And and uh, I grew up to learn, you know, I knew there were Indian chiefs and firemen and policemen. But basically, I grew up in Nashville, and I realized that I was right. Almost everybody was was in the music business. And I, being raised right in the middle of backstage Grand Ole Opry, damn near every weekend from the time before I could walk, uh, I just, I grew up with all the the sensibilities of a of a kid growing up in the middle of the music business, loving the uh, the art of writing because I was just surrounded by it. It was done right in our kitchen, in our living room every day of my life. So I really got it. I loved it. I knew it. Uh, in the summers, if I had a job outside of the house, which wasn't that often, but when I got, you know, junior, senior in high school, I went to work at Monument Records. Fred Rose was one of my father's dearest friends. I mean, Fred Foster. And so I was I was around those people a lot and, you know, shucking records and sending them out. 
uh, when my brother and I first got out of college or the service, college, my case, service in, in guard, my brother, Vietnam, we went to work for the publishing company. We had a office in the Monument Record uh, building, which my father had built for Fred Foster, said, you know, move your company to Nashville, I'll build you a building, and he did. And so everybody at Monument was working around, walking around and, you know, very close to the family. I knew Dolly Parton, Christopherson, Mickey Newberry, everybody wow. in Hendersonville and everybody on the Monument. And I, I'd known all these people from Chet to Jimmy to everybody my whole life. I, that was my life. So we were working in the publishing company and taking, you know, promotion trips, uh, carrying the folks' records around the country, visiting with disc jockeys, really doing it the way my folks must have done it. And this was uh, late 60s and right into the early 70s. And one day we're at lunch over at the house, which was only about two miles from uh, Monument Records, where our office was in the downstairs of that. And Dane and I are there eating lunch. Mom and Dad are there, and phone rings. And this this uh, thing I'm going to explain to you probably didn't take all together five minutes, probably less. <laughs> so a phone, the phone rings. Dad gets it. Says, "Oh, hey, Francis. Wow, good to hear from you. How's everything going?" And she said, "Well, I'd like to speak to you and police about about something. Can you can you get police on the phone?" My dad says, and mom's in the kitchen. We're all in the kitchen living room area. And dad says, Felice, go upstairs and get on the line. It's Frances, and she wants to talk to us about something. And Frances was an important person in my family. I'd known her since. The, of course. The, like the, the, I remember her well since the 57, 58. And my folks knew her through their business, and she was an instrumental, important person in the industry. And it started to be in my office uh, in the mid-50s, and it helped throw the first early parties celebrating country music. And my folks known her from WSM and so forth. So she was a known entity, and she didn't, now she was at BMI, and she was very important to our life. My folks were big BMI riders. And so mom goes upstairs, and this is, uh, you know, a minute hasn't taken place. And then about... Forty seconds later, mother comes walking down the stairs, and she's crying. And she says, and, I, and my brother and I are standing right there about 20 feet from her, and said, what's wrong, mother? And she says, nothing, nothing's wrong. She said, Francis Preston wants to hire one of my boys and doesn't even care which one. <laughs> she's so proud. You know, Frances was a person in high esteem with my folks and in the industry, and she doesn't care which one. So, so how do they decide? Yeah. <laughs> and so my dad is still on the phone to Frances. He says, Frances, uh, uh, we're going to call you right back. And so <laughs> my dad, mother walks toward dad, and dad says, that, that's it, boys. Uh, Frances would like to have one of you come and work at BMI. And my brother immediately had just been back from Vietnam, I don't know, six months, nine months, said, well, I don't want to. He says, I want to be a publisher. And I said, well, uh, let's discuss it for a second. Meanwhile, my life was pretty crazy at that point. I had one baby, one on the way, and working for your parents 
quite often it was never the quick road to success. Growing sure. up with your parents and learning what they knew and being raised in the industry was certainly the key. But working for my folks, I was uh I'd gotten out of the guard. I was going in going to the guard drop zone and catching palletized cargo on parachutes I'd been helping wrap every weekend to make a little extra money because I was bringing home about $70 a week working for mom and dad. I had one on the ground, and as Loretta would say, one's on the way. And yep. uh, and I just could barely afford anything. And I said, well, golly, I said, that's, that's pretty interesting. I said, you know, it might not be a bad idea. And my dad said, well, you know, I think it might be good. He said, might help you build your phone book up a little. As I said, that was the key. And... Uh, Dane and I had been working at House of Bryant, and we'd go down and pitch songs to everybody from Billy Sherrill to Owen to whomever. And we were a little boodlone police. Sometimes I was a little police, and sometimes I was a little boodlone. Hardly knew our names, even though they'd seen us for 20-plus years since we were babies. And, uh, and it wasn't easy to try to pitch Rocky Top over and over again after it's been a hit or the pitch bye bye love or all I have to do is dream or right. the new songs the folks were bringing out. We'd gotten Donny Osmond to cut a couple of things through Rick Hall and but it was tough. And uh I said, Well maybe maybe it would help help me get to know some people and it might not be a bad idea. My father said, I think it's a good idea. Do that for a year or two and build your phone book up and come back and really charge hard. And so I said, well, okay, that's interesting. So he calls Francis back. Now this is about three and a half to four minutes into this since the first phone rang. <laughs> and he gets there and said, Francis, uh, I believe Dell is interested. And she said, well, would you put him on? And I, said, I got on the phone and she said, hi, Dell, this is Francis. Uh, this job pays uh, $300 a week. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm making a hundred and bringing home seven, <laughs> and uh, it comes with a car and an expense account, but you have to wear a coat and tie every day. And I said, "Oh, uh, uh, one second, I, I I don't have any coats and tie." And I said, "One second, My father heard me say, he "said Don't worry, we'll take care of that." And I said, "Well, my father said we can take care of that." And uh, she said, "When do you want to start?" And I and this was a Thursday. I remember distinctly. And I said, well, uh, one second. I said, Dad, when can I start? And he said, well, Monday would work. And so I went to I went to to work uh, Monday, which I think was October the second that year. This was in '72. And Dad called a friend of his, a, a haberdasher at Levy's, the men's clothing place, and said, now my son needs a new wardrobe of some slacks, maybe a suit, certainly sports coats, tie, belt, some shoes and uh, shirts. And what, how, how will I, what will that take to do? And he needs to have some of this by Monday. And the guy said, well, I think a thousand dollars would do it. My father said, well, that's it. Then just, I'm sending him over there. Uh, He'll be there in about an hour or so. And uh, you just set him up and, uh, and just put it on the bill. And so I went to Levy's. That afternoon, after lunch, and uh, got a thousand dollars worth of dress-up BMI clothes. <laughs> wow! And and the next 
Monday, I walk into the back door of BMI, and I, I'll always remember Francis saying, well, I wasn't sure which one I was getting, so you're Dale. <laughs> we were like twins to half the world. I mean, we're about the same size. You know, we didn't look alike. We weren't twins, but, you know, we're two two Italian-looking boys out of, out of uh, mom and dad, you know, and everybody knew us, but they we were a little Boudlo and Felice half the time. Or Dane right. and they weren't sure exactly which one was which. But I went to work, and uh, I celebrated uh, my, uh, I think, my 24th birthday that, that week. They had a surprise party for me, Francis did. And it was my birthday, and I was 24. So I went to work when I was 23, and I retired when I was uh, 66. <laughs> wow. So what, what do you think, I mean, songwriter writes, have been such an important issue in, you know, music business news, you know, within the past several years, especially with streaming and, you know, how they're compensated fairly. You have the, you know, the mechanical license committee that just was created. And, you know, what do you think your parents would be feeling about the state of songwriters now? Do you think they'd be advocating for certain rights or how, or, or you as well? I mean, how, like where, where do you think they'd be feeling about, where songwriters are placed in society right now? Well, I think that it would be very similar to the way they felt at that time. First, they felt very blessed and lucky to be able to make a living in it. Secondly, they always felt that the the value of the hit song wasn't quite where it should be. It was very apparent when they started having great success in the late 40s and throughout the 50s and 60s that they were still earning income based on a 1909 copyright law that was right. built around piano roll, you know. And they were also very aware about distributors and how many records quite often went uncounted and so forth and so on. They knew that it was very hard to make a lot of money splitting two cents with the publisher. Fortunately enough, they, because they both wrote or one of them wrote the hits, they were getting a full cent at least, the full writer's share. Right. And fortunately also they knew that performing rights was was really where most of the income was coming from. And even though it was growing slow, it was growing. So bring it to today. Most writers know today that there are some real problems with the mechanicals. The the copyright laws are somewhat out of date. They right. Know that uh, the contribution that the song makes, and they feel the contribution the song song makes, still isn't uh, isn't equivalent to where it should be. And my folks were very much. Dad was very active in the musicians' union. He was very erudite, very intellectual, well written. Uh, you never could find a word he didn't use in his vocabulary. I mean, he was well-spoken. He fought on behalf of musicians. He was one of the early people that helped fund the National Songwriters Association. And he believed in speaking up on behalf of the arts, and artists, writers specifically. So he would probably still be vocal. But the one thing that he realized was that they were writing hits and they were making a good living and he was most thankful for that. I think today 
the same is true today as it would have been true then. If you're not writing hits, the copyright laws aren't going to help you a hell of a lot. Even if the if the payments are are greater and if the uh, remuneration is in some way seems more fair, you've got to have hits. You've got to have real success before before uh, appropriate payments really make a difference. Right. So, I think that was the case then. I think it's the case now. The truth is, and this was the truth when my parents were, were first at it, royalty rates have never kept up for the writer compared to where they should be. The same is true today. The gatekeeper today in the digital world became, unfortunately, the label. And the labels have figured out a way to put most of the income, certainly through uh, streaming and through sound exchange and a lot of the deals that they've made, put most of the money in the artist's hands and in their hands. And since the artists quite often owe them a tremendous amount of income and uh, money off the top, the labels are really the ones that make out the best. Now, of course, labels have to do well in order to invest in the new artist and so forth and so on. So I'm not really completely, uh, I'm certainly not at all negating the importance of labels today, as they've always been important. But I am saying that writers are always sucking the hind tip. And that's just as true today as it was many, many years ago. And music continuously seems as though it's more important, more ubiquitous, more popular, and you would like to think that a day would arrive where people felt compensated properly. I don't know that that's possible for people to feel that way, even if the rates were dramatically changed. It's, a, it's an artistic business, and the artist quite often just doesn't get their due in their own mind and in the mind of many people who work with them, such as myself, it always seems to be a trailing situation. Now, to what degree today are you involved working with artists? Because you retired from the head of BMI a couple of years ago. Do you still stay involved? Or are you still constantly working with writers and artists? Well, it's, uh, you know, a couple of years runs into five years, runs into six years. It's six years this June. Six years. So I my my life is still, you know, surrounded with artists. I mean, people like a Mac Davis or a John Oates or, or a heavens. I mean, just a tremendous amount of songwriters, artists, stars, would-be stars are the people that I hang out with and visit with and keep up with. But I'm not really, other than just casually advising as one friend would another, not doing any business with them. We're just having good times. And, uh, discovering every now and then a new writer or a new artist or some new music together and saying, yeah, isn't that grand? But I don't, I don't think that I can say uh, that I'm really active in, in other people's careers. I certainly keep up with what's going on with BMI and some of the fights and successes they're having because I am automatically called on weekly without a doubt to say well what's BMI doing or what's going on here and 
I feel it's my responsibility to know those answers since I was with BMI for, you know, 42 years. So I keep up from that point of view. But for the most part, Zach, my my life, as far as the music goes, is involved with administering and working on House of Bryant and all the copyrights that my brother and I own. Sure. Now, reportedly, you know, your parents have over 6,000 songs in the catalog. You know, 900 were cut or recorded is, you know, what the numbers say. Are there songs in the catalog that could still be cut today by artists potentially? Is, you know, are there, I'm, I'm sure there's still amazing songs deep in that catalog that nobody's ever heard. I would think, Zach, that there are at least a couple of hundred that that uh, that I'm easily familiar with that that I think are as good as anything. And every now and then we get a new one cut. And uh, we uh, we have been so consumed, uh, specifically I have, and my wife and uh, my brother to an extent, but so consumed with everything in the last five or six years leading up to the Ken Burns, leading up to the gift to the Country Music Hall of Fame, leading up to the exhibition, leading up to uh, my father's centennial celebration and my parents' uh, silver anniversary, leading up to the Unbelievable. The, the concert at the Skirmerhorn, leading up to various television programs like uh, Heavenly Harmonies, the Everly Brothers that we were involved with, and so many different things that actually trying to pitch newer songs is sort of taking a background, but we have gotten more involved in the last year or so and spoken to people uh, like the milk carton kids and other people about doing some new stuff. And, and actually I've gotten a few people excited over some uh, very beautiful, roughly demoed things, but that's the way my parents did it. So there are, there are literally thousands of songs that nobody knows Unfortunately, there there are quite a quite a few songs, maybe as many as a uh, thousand, that are sitting in their books that we don't have demos on, which it's really hard to unravel. And and a lot of their songs were written after Dane and I left for college and so forth. And we don't have as good a memory as we did during those golden years, so to speak. So, and there are just scads of instrumentals written everywhere on 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 in in the books that are probably just as good as Country Gentleman or Theme from a Dream or or, or Mexico or any number of these uh, really uniquely uh, important instrumentals and that we may never quite unravel. Sure. I mean, the, the exhibit that's up right now is, is incredible. I hope it gets to stay there by the time we get out of this so people can get in and look at it and see all of the interactiveness and and, you know, and just look at the books and the ledgers and everything. I mean, these things that are now behind glass were just common items in your life that you grew up around. Is it weird to see them immortalized or is it weird to see them, you know, as museum pieces now? They were just, you know, something on your coffee table or something in your childhood home. Yeah, they were always on the coffee table, uh, a few of the recent ones, and then the rest were just stuffed under it where Dad could easily get to them and work on an old song or pitch an old song. So they were right there in the right by the guitar and right by the table that people would come to and sit in a little couch and listen to songs. So I find that every time I've been uh, at the exhibition, before I know it, much like a magnet, I've been pulled. I've been pulled uh, close to the, to the 
wall of books. I mean, it's, I just, I'm very comfortable being around them and a little bit uncomfortable knowing that they're not mine anymore, my brothers. So it's, uh, it, it is a little awkward, but, but it feels good to be around them and drawn, drawn to them in those rooms. And, uh, I know that more people will be able to enjoy them. There was a certain amount of degradation taking place in the in the in the volumes, and I know they're in the right place. My brother and I both know they're in the right place. We could have sold them for a whole lot of money, but it's but hell, somebody might like a Paul Allen might put it in his basement and just show it to his friends. You know, uh, right. it needs to be seen by songwriters first, historians and music devotees second. And uh, I, I do believe that they're important, and I'm glad that they can be shared. I was very, very thrilled uh, to they notified us and asked us if we would uh, – we had given certain things that weren't initially – that weren't given to the museum that were also in that uh, exhibition. But they want to extend the exhibition into September of next year. <coughs> so hopefully we can get back from this uh, – abyss that we seem to be hovering over and uh next year i i hope we can pick back up it was just doing gangbusters and getting a lot of a lot of viewership and a lot of activity and i i really am pleased that it's going to be up i believe long enough to to let uh, a much larger audience enjoy it well i love watching clips of them and they just seem so authentic. They seem so real. It feels to me like, you know, you have these figures in music that sort of set the precedent of what someone is supposed to act like. And then everyone else after will, you know, copy that mentality or that attitude. And sometimes it feels a little superficial. And when you watch these interviews with your parents, they just seem so authentic, so real. There's, you know, it feels like there was, there was just no ego. They seem like they were so happy together. Um, you know, and they and just they were just natural songwriters. They didn't have to force it. You know, it wasn't, it you know, it, they they didn't see someone else. You know, or you know, they they were they were creating the path, and it just seemed so natural. I mean, was that sort of the sense? Is that the way it was? Did it just feel very natural and very authentic and very? You know, I would pure? say, I would say it was most of all pure. It was it was authentic in that it happened every day the same way they had supreme confidence in their talent and more confidence than I could ever uh, share with you in each other and that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing and that the gift they were being given on a daily basis was, was, was far and beyond their understanding, but they were completely grateful and, and, and thrilled to be a part of that uh, gift and that, uh, delivery to the world. I mean, things were just passing through them, they felt, not necessarily being created by them. Unbelievable. Well, I feel like we could, we could go on for hours about this. And I mean, there's so much of the story that's, you know, well-documented that we didn't even dive into, like Rocky Top and, and how that song yeah. was, was, was written. And, and, you know, I encourage everyone, if they don't know the history, to go back, watch the Ken Burns documentary, and just read up even the Wikipedia page or whatever it is. But you know, such iconic pioneers in music. And, and you know, how, how do you think it's, how do you try to preserve the, the, their legacy for so long? I mean, the exhibit's incredible. There's a brand new book out. You know, how do your brother, how do you and your brother think about making sure the legacy is preserved 
and that they're remembered for generations to come. Well, we were such a part of it. In all honesty, it was it was a it was a home effort. And when we had the big dinners or the little dinners and people coming over, whether it was the Everleys or the Eddie Arnolds or the Burl Ives or the, you know, Kershaw brothers or Wilburn brothers or, you know, Ray Price or Jim Reeves or Chet or anybody, uh, we were part and parcel to the evening. Mom would say, stir the sauce. I'm making a salad or set the table. And it was just a team effort, it felt like. I'm We'd go to bed and and Dad would say, "Put put uh put your thoughts and prayers on uh, let's think about living breaking in Dallas because if it goes on uh, KLT or whatever the station was, that will be enough to pick up the other stations and we'll probably have a hit. Or you know, just put some good thoughts in flipping this record. We think we have the A side, but everyone doesn't know it yet. So it was." It was what the whole family was doing. It was like a little house on the prairie. And we were all a part of it. So keeping that alive and keeping those songs alive and keeping an appreciation for who our folks were and their importance alive has has never been anything but a conscious effort on behalf of my brother and myself. It's not like, oh, should we do it? It was... Promoting that and keeping that alive was almost like keeping oxygen in our own uh, lungs, so to speak. Right. It, it gave us everything that we have. It It is our biggest experience. It gave us the knowledge that we needed to be successful in the business. And so it's, it's, it's never a conscious decision, should we do this or do that. The conscious decision is what can we do and what, what do we need to do, what can we afford to do. And, but anybody who wants to talk about our folks gets our total attention and anything that we can do if people want songs or they want information that goes into a show or a film or a, an article, we're there for it because most of all, we're, we're, we're believers. <laughs> and, and it is everything that you said and everything other people have said. It was very magical. And those songs, I mean, you take a song like love hurts or, or sleepless nights or we could, or, are um, even B-sides, like Always It's You, the B-side of Kathy's Clown. These songs are perfect today as they were then. I mean, songs like uh, I'm a Little Bit I'm Loud or Out Behind the Barn, they're a little more colloquial and they may not fit as well, although they're clever and, and you can get a big kick out of hearing any of them. But a lot of their love songs or their painful songs like a Love Hurts, are really timeless, and that's why we still have a tremendous amount of activity on those songs around the world in, uh, in commercials. I mean, whether it's Israel or Portugal or Denmark or England, you know, we license those things every year. So, we, we, you know, we drank the Kool-Aid at, at, at our household. And uh, anything we can do to, to let people more fully understand how how really talented they were, how important they were, how innovative they were, and most of all, how good the songs that they that they delivered are. So it's 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 the Kool Aid line. We drank it. Absolutely. Any any great memories or stories about you know being babysat by Minnie Pearl at the Opry or or any legends coming to the house? Anything totally wild and crazy 
that you know stands out if you uh, had to pick just one? Dane and I would be babysat every weekend for for moments at a time at the Grand Old Opera, and Dad would be in the back with the musicians, and Mom might run out the side door to the back of the audience to scream her living fanny off uh, to help start an encore, because if you get an encore, you'd get an entirely new verse or the or the last verse sung again and again if you had enough encores, and it was... It was like hooking a big fish better and better with each jerk. And mom would, whether it was string bean or uh, or or Minnie or it could have been anybody. I remember running the curtains, running behind the curtains with Hank Jr. I mean, it was just a life full of those type of occasions from being a baby to to being a teenager or almost a teenager when all the kids you know, in school, I wanted to hang out at your house thinking they were going to see uh, the Everly Brothers or Mark Denning, who Dad had gotten his label deal, the guy at Teen Angel, or all these type of people at the house. So uh, we were right in the middle of the creative explosion of Nashville. And there was just so many stories. I mean, every day something was going on, the least of which at the same time, the most of which were songs being written. I mean, there were always songs being written. The house was full of songs every day. You don't write thousands and thousands and thousands of finished songs without writing every day. Through the night, so forth and so on. So the house was full of music and full of people coming to see what it was all about. At what point do you think they realized, if, if they did how significant they were to Nashville, the fact that they were really the first songwriters who were pure songwriters. And, you know, now there, you know, there's countless songwriters who are just songwriters. You know, was there a point where they realized that they had really pioneered that space that exploded? Did they carry that with them at all? If you're in an aquarium, let's say a, a water aquarium, and you're a turtle, and it's not a big aquarium, and you're the only turtle there, you know it. Right. You simply know it. I mean, there was no point where they didn't know that they were pioneering new ground every single day. Uh, they they were told by everybody, well, you can't just make a living writing songs. You better get a day job, too. You better do this or better do that. No, they, from the very beginning, once they moved in and, and, and worked it, so hard. I can't tell you how hard they worked at Zach. Some 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 years they'd get 50, 60, 70 cuts in a year. Wow. Oh, I mean, B-sides, A-sides, album cuts, no sides. I mean, bombs, hits. They were hitting it so hard, and there, there, there just weren't people doing that. And when people started moving to town who were doing that, they had to come by Boudlow and Felice's first. Everybody would send them. You ought to go see Boudlow and Felice. I remember the, the first... First uh, week, John D. Loudermilk came and drove over to our house. I remember when Harlan hit town. I remember when Cochran hit town. I mean, everybody knew you had to go and 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 visit with the Bryants to see exactly what you might be doing. Now, my folks never ever sat around with other songwriters and played songs back and forth. My father wouldn't do it; just wouldn't do it. But he would. All these people would come and they'd visit, and if they wanted to sing a song that was in the charts or they wanted to hear one of mom and dad's that had been out, that was fine, but no new songs. My my father didn't 
didn't make a living and didn't become who he and mom became by showing songwriters songs. They they tolerated and had some good friends, but they spent their time writing and the rest of their time with producers and artists because that's what they needed to be doing to, to make it all work. They never until probably in the later 70s ever ever thought that they had made it. You know, they, it, it was always the next song. They never wrote a song like Bye Bye Love or All I Have to Do is Dream or Love Hurts and said, man, I've made it. It was like, what's next? What's next? So it was always what's next that drove them. As a as a person in the industry, I used to have people come in and show a couple of songs, and I'd say, well, it was pretty good. I mean, uh, have you had any luck with them? No, I can't get anybody. They don't they don't think it's strong enough. And I said, well, it's, it sounds complete, but I'm 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 not sure I would uh, spend my time and effort cutting that song if I was an artist looking for a hit. But everybody has their own set of ears. But you need to just keep on writing. And they said, well, you know, I'm, I've got to get these songs cut. These are good. And and that's what we referred to in my day, and my folks referred to as getting so married to a couple of songs that that you don't you don't allow any new ones in. And I've seen so many people in my time, especially back in the early days in seventies and eighties, they they'd come to town with a, a small group of songs, and they'd spend so much effort trying to get those songs cut and trying to convince people that they should cut them, even after everybody had passed, that they couldn't. They couldn't get out of their own way and write new songs. They were they were talented people, but they just couldn't. They they didn't realize that the next song was the most important song. That was my parents' best awareness, and they felt without a doubt that their their success would be in in obviously having quality songs, but quantity would be what made it work, because they knew they could show twenty songs to an artist, and he might just take one. But they had to they had to write twenty one to get that one cut by that artist. So they they knew early on that they were unique. They saw people coming into town, and they that only made them say, "Man, I've got to write better songs." People are getting good at this, and there are more and more people. They never disparaged that. They just worked harder. Uh, but they they knew they were they were cutting uh, new ground. And they also knew that they were they were extremely uh, lucky enough to have great songs delivered to them through the through the ether, and especially they knew that they had to polish on those things. They had to make them <coughs> polished and finished, and and not do any half-assed stuff. And my, you know, their biggest. Uh, their biggest uh, thing was, you know, we think that perfect rhymes are important, and they would work, Dad especially, at making sure everything was slick and down to the syllable and that the meter was great. And so, and that, of course, what helps ensure that a song is easy to sing by anybody. And thirdly, I'll just give you like, give you one bit of uh, my father's wisdom that I've always loved. He really believed in hard rhymes. He was really a firm believer in hard rhymes. And whether they were just clever or cute or whatever, it, uh, I mean, like, only trouble is, gee whiz, I'm dreaming my life away. Uh, you know, only trouble is, that second, everybody knew what the next line was. You'd never heard it once. 
but you knew what it was. And if you're really slow and you hear the G coming, you knew it was going to be whiz. But everybody knew it was coming. And Dad's feeling about hard rhymes was that <coughs> your audience sensed it coming. And if, if it had been some other songwriter sitting in the room with you, hell, he'd have been your co-writer. So to him, by using the hard rhyme and setting songs up in a way that quite often you were surprised at the rhyme because other rhymes would have worked, but you you, you had a good shot by the time it was almost delivered to you to know what it was, he felt that that was almost equivalent to having the audience become your co-writer. And that's what he felt made the audience feel like, this is my song, this is our song. I mean, you hear a song like Love Hurts, Love Scars, Love Wounds, and Mars would be pretty natural for a lot of people. Not a lot of people. It's an unusual word. But any any uh, son that's tough nor strong enough, they were already there with enough. Take a lot of pain. Love is like a cloud, holds a lot of Everybody was there with rain. Everybody. And yet they'd never heard it. So Dad believed that that, that type of approach to writing and the hard rhymes and setting up things, made the audience a co-writer and, and consequently allowed them to hold that song so close to themselves in the in, in the term that so many people use, that's our song or my song. I always loved that explanation and hardly ever found out anything in my career as a music man, as an executive, as a music industry type that that made any more sense than that. Absolutely. Are there any writers today that you think would be included that, that that your dad would have been fans of, you know, or that you know they 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 would have helped mentor and, and guide anyone today that you think they would have really respected? Uh, I think I think dad and mother would have, mother more so probably. Dad just dad was he doesn't mean that he wasn't capable of respecting. He respected probably more so a musicianship, such a consummate musician. But mother, being a song person and always singing the song, she she loved songs in a way that my father, he loved to write them. He didn't sit around thinking about other people's songs that much. But one song, I tell you, two songs that my father loved. And I he loved Yesterday, and he loved uh, uh, the song that Randy Goodrum wrote for uh, uh, Anne Murray. The big ballad she had. I can't think of it right now. Oh, um, I can't think of it either. <laughs> but he loved that song. And those two songs stuck out to him. One person he was very, very, very fond of and thought he was extremely talented was Jimmy Webb. My mother loved Jimmy. Uh, her favorite song, This Time We Almost Made It, didn't we? Uh, but today's younger writers, so many of them, uh, don't really depend on on a hard rhyme at all. They they they're they're more interested in getting the song finished and getting their idea across than they are the actual polishing of the song. And that wouldn't be as uh, impressive to my folks. In, in fact, they would uh, they would probably say, "Wow, I don't quite understand that that well." But my mother, when she heard a good song, whenever she heard a good song, she really appreciated it, wanted to know who wrote it, and was was uh, and became a fan, so to speak. Uh, my dad was a fan of musicianship. He was a fan of uh, his two his two favorite songs 
uh, he always cited was freight train and in the pines. Wow. Elizabeth Conan and uh, going so fast and in the pines, in the pines where the sun never shines. Right. For a guy who is a classically trained and somebody who would uh, write Mexico or or Sleepless Nights or Love Hurts or, or Wake Up Little Susie to all of a sudden cite in the pines and freight train, that it sounds sort of inconsistent in some ways but it just goes to the absolute heart and soul of of music i mean it's much like the gregorian chant certain things are just haunting and they're so in the pocket that it doesn't matter that heifetz didn't play it you know it just it it speaks to your to your your gut your soul your your uh emotional depths and those two songs were the ones that my dad always quoted that were his favorite Funny to me, even. Wow. Would they read any poets ever, just pure poets? Would they ever look at poetry? Uh, my father was, he was, his his line of poetry would have been more in keeping with Khalil Gibran uh, or, or the Upanishads and Hindu and things of that sort. Uh, my mother was a big fan, huge fan of the American uh, the greatest uh, uh, poets of the English language, whether it was uh, Poe or, or Pope or, or an English uh, poet or an American poet or the old wooden bucket or, or Masters or Sandberg. She loved poetry. She had been a big, big poet and, and fond of poetry and had written it before she met Dad. Dad had read it all. He loved he was more into prose. My father had a book, probably average reading a book uh, a day, and he was very fond of mysteries. He loved uh, he loved stories. He loved Agatha Christie. He loved uh, Wadsworth uh, uh, Longfellow and all all those great storytellers. Uh, and that's probably why he wrote so well and wrote so much. They both did, but Dad was really an engine because. He read voraciously. My father was a speed reader without ever calling himself a speed reader, but he was just turning the pages continuously. And he had so many, so many ideas and scenarios and and books and mysteries and things rolling around his head. To to come up with a three minute song wasn't the biggest challenge in the world. Uh, he thought that it was rather an exercise and what he was good at, but. He really, back to musicianship, was more impressed with a Stefan Grappelli or a Django Reinhardt Heifetz, who he wished he had been born as, than than just regular songwriters or or artists. Did he have a good memory? Did he remember everything that he would read? Oh, yeah. He had an incredible... My brother and I used to play a game with him called Dictionary. And we had... Zach, we must, if we had one, we had 15 dictionaries in the house. Some of them, the big ones with the onion skin that would be about yep. seven inches thick and, you know, just, you know, onion skin. And uh, we used to play from the time I can remember being aware of a dictionary uh, through being in my 20s. We used to play dictionary when we'd be hanging out at the house with Dad. And that game consisted of us playing any one of the dictionaries sitting there and trying to find a word that my father could not spell and tell you the definition of. I never found one. 
because he, he would he would read the dictionary page by page. Well, he he had just read so much and looked up every word he didn't understand. He just knew it. And he had taken Greek and Latin. He could almost, without doubt, tell you if the word came from Latin, from Greek, or from French. Give you the root. Uh, and, and you know, he had all those dictionaries that would go from Greek to English, Latin to this, French to that, uh, uh, Hebrew to this. You know, he, was, he read a lot of uh, religion. And he knew the roots of everything. And if there was a word... You get all excited. You think you were going to stump him. He said, well, it's, it should be spelled this way. I've, I've seen that word. And the root is this and so-and-so. It must mean that he – and that was when he was struggling, but he never was wrong, ever. So my, my father, when my brother and I would always query, how in the hell are you doing this? He'd say, well, I have a, a, a photographic memory for words. He said, if I've ever seen a word, I can spell it. And he said, in words I didn't know, I always looked looked up, and I and I knew roots, and I studied etymology and the whole bit. He said, but if I've ever seen a word, I can spell it. And he had a – my father was one of those high IQ people. If you ever see any pictures or remember seeing any video of him, he had a huge head. You could never <laughs> buy it from his father. Nothing fit. It always had that you had to have it, a special hat. He had a big head, and I'm – I'm just sure that it was a big brain in it. He he was one of those like 140, 150 IQ people. He was uh, he was he was brilliant, and uh, but not not uh, not so bought into it or, or proud about it that he talked about it. He he you know he was he was somewhat shy and he was very humble. And somebody said, "Man, you 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 must have perfect pitch." My father would say, "No, no, I don't have perfect pitch. I have relative pitch." I mean, he knew what he knew. He knew what he had, and he knew what he didn't. And he, and he, and he wasn't bragging about any of it, really. And if you said, "Boy, you're good. You're this. You're that," or you and Felice, he'd say, "We've been awfully lucky and blessed." Were they Were they very religious? I mean, you mentioned they, they, that your father would tell you to pray going to bed that the songs would do well. But were you going to church every Sunday? No, no, we didn't. My mother had been raised Catholic, and she'd sort of turned away from the church. Too many priests had tried to put their hands on her, and she was, but she, she in one sense was still a practicing Catholic, even though she didn't go to church. Uh, in one sense, in, in believing in, in Jesus and God and in the greater mystery. My father was very Eastern. He had uh, communicated with some old gurus from India. He he uh, was a member of the uh, the foundation that Yogananda started. He he was an earlier follower and reader and joined the uh, Research and Enlightenment Center that Edgar Casey started. He was uh, hypnotizing people as a very young man. He was meditating as a young man. He was he was into the occult from the positive end, not nothing uh, demonic in any way. Uh, he was wait, your your father was hypnotizing people. How wait, wait, how 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 would he do that? Or what, where 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 is that? How does that work? Well, he, he hypnotized people out of quitting smoking, hypnotized uh, musicians to picking up other instruments and learning the chord or piano. He was he was into anything that was kind of uh, what you might call liberally, spiritually uh, directed. He was very much into the powers of the mind and how 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 all that 
infused with spirit and through the ether and through a, a, a living, powerful God. He was very Eastern. He was, uh, as I said, meditated. He, he. I don't know if you're familiar who Edgar Cayce was or who Paramahansa Yogananda was. No. Well, read up on Paramahansa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, the number one autobiography, uh, one of them ever written. And it's I taught, will, yeah. It's taught in universities as an introductory, introductory to Eastern religion. But this guy came over in the 20s and... Uh, I mean, there, there are people all over Nashville. There's a, there are Yogananda organizations here in Nashville. Uh, songwriters belong to it. Uh, and, it, you know, this guy died in 52, I believe. But my father was way off into that as a very young man. And he was very spiritual. They used to refer to him as the guru of Nashville. I mean, back in the 50s. My father was, uh, he was out there. He was spiritually kind and sweet and didn't feel he had to proselytize. No one had to believe like him. He, I was raised on on the on the theory and the reality of reincarnation. We, my parents, uh, brought people in from all over the country and indeed the world who were clairvoyants. I mean, my father was interested in God and spirit and uh, and time and 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 reincarnation and big questions. Well, Dell, I feel like we could do six or seven of these. We, we've we already gone over the hour that I promised. This has been such a thrill. So cool talking with you. I mean, you know, it's later that I sort of learned who they actually were, but I, I've been listening to their songs my entire life, and to just hear these stories and talk with you has just been such a thrill. So cool, and, and I'm so appreciative that you took the time and we were able to make this happen. Well, I'm glad to do it, and if uh, if you have any success with this with this effort, and you want to do one pointed more in one direction or less than another, or just the songs, or just Rocky Top, or just the Everleys, or or just anything, I'd be glad to do it with you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Stay healthy out there, and I hope we get the chance to meet in person when when this all clears up. Okay. Thank you so much, Zach. I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad. I'm, be a part of your presentations thanks again for tuning in and thanks to dell for taking the time to talk so much fun such a thrill such a history lesson hope we get the chance to do it again soon the zach kuhn show is mixed by sam Heyman, and our theme music is by justin johnson if you want more content from us you can subscribe to our newsletter at nashvillebriefing.com or you can follow us on socials everything at nashville briefing Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.